Welcome to Inclusion at Work. We show the abilities and value of people with disabilities. I'm your host, Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Oz Mandohar, a business consultant, uh, former uh, vice president at Mass General Brigham, Balding Rehabilitation Network, and owner of a critically acclaimed restaurant, a vice chair of the Commonwealth Corporation appointed by Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, and the recipient of the White House Disability Employment Champion of Change Award given by President Barack Obama. Welcome, Oz. Well, thank you, Larry. It's just terrific to be with you today, and it's good to see you. Well, it's good to see you and to talk to you again. It's been a long time, but uh, I remember interviewing you some years ago, and I'm excited to hear about some other parts of your life that I'm not as familiar with. But let's go back. I know part of your story is an immigrant story, and uh, and if you could begin there and start talking about how your parents came to this country, and then when you were born and what happened to you that caused your disability. Sure, sure. Happy to share a bit of my background. So my parents are Cuban. Um, they uh, headed to the U.S. at Norte, as we'd call it, back in '54, and uh, went to New York and New Jersey and started their lives there. And I happened to come a little bit later. I happened to, uh, I was born in 58. And during that time, there was um, a a medication that was given to expecting mothers that were having morning sickness. It's titled thalidomide, which many iterations of thalidomide are now at play. And it was um, having a significant impact on births in Europe um, during that time, uh, let's say late 50s into early 60s. And there were only a few thousand cases in the U.S. I happened to be one of them. The impact was to mostly to children's limbs. Uh, Some children were born with no limbs. Some had a variation thereof. And I was born with one hand and one that is um, differently designed. So so, so I'm left-handed and I navigate world with uh, just a di- di- with the limb difference. As I remember, the childhood was difficult in schools and you developed techniques to sort of hide your hands so that your playmates and your schoolmates wouldn't know really what they were seeing, actually. Sure. Well, you mentioned early on that the immigrant experience and as you, are, if you come to this country, this wonderful world of ours, and I was born in the U.S., when I was born, I was sent to Cuba, by the way, and I was there during the takeover of Fidel Castro. So mm-hmm. I, was, um, I wasn't I was able to leave the island until uh, three years later when we returned to the States, and that was in the early 60s. Because I was American-born, so I'm very fortunate. And when you come back to this vast land, you have to find your way through. And my mother, as a single parent then, landed. we landed in several different parts of the East Coast, which was Florida, parts of Florida, uh, New Jersey, and then ultimately landed in Boston, which is where I grew up. And what happens when you have a visible difference as a child, you navigate the world to make others feel more comfortable. And I think we do that as an adult as well. And so I was very adept at hiding my hands in my pockets. And, and really, uh, there was nothing else that would show there was a difference until I had to sit down and start to write. And I mean, it, it, it was definitely uh, very uh, vibrant to me still, the reaction of children, but even the, prof- the teachers. And, you know, there were assumptions about, is he able to write? Is he able to think? Is what, all those things that may cross someone's mind, not knowing the abilities of someone like myself. And so that went on. And being a new kid on the block was not a fun month. And how do you fit in, whether it's recess, whether it's really participating in some sort of event, uh, making the, um, 
the gym teachers comfortable with what we could do and not do. So those things were things that I navigated. And I wrote a children's book that I haven't published, but it was about being adept at making others feel comfortable. And I remember I lived, we lived in apartments and my, if I was lucky if I had a fire escape that I would call my backyard, but I dreamt often of just being able to take my hands out and being able to spin around in the backyard somewhere where no one could see me. Um, so those, those, um, those bumps along the way that had those sad days really created the strength in me to be able to navigate further and later on. But those, that, that was tough. You have siblings? I have a wonderful sister. She's right, uh, I remember. sister. Yeah. She's, uh, she's terrific. She's able-bodied and was my champion from the word get-go. As a matter of fact, her name is Marty, Marty Bloom, and she taught me how to tie my shoes. So she has two able hands and she made a fist like my arm and she taught me how to tie my shoes with one hand. And so since that time, she's taught me an awful lot and we're peas in a pod. So I uh, really revere her. And an incredible mother that just took no, would never take no for an answer. <laughs> you went to work when you were quite young, like 13, I think, is that right? That's amazing. Yeah. So, so I was okay academically. I wasn't the brightest bulb in the room. I was very um, solid in, in the arts. And as a matter of fact, we received uh, some attention for that. Um, we were, we were struggling as we're poor. We never really uh, knew that until later on. And so uh, my mother wasn't necessarily just to make money, but she saw me kind of becoming a bit of a recluse and not necessarily participating. And so she spoke with one of her uh, friends and she told her about, about me and the individual owned a deli and I became one of their delivery boys and stalkers on the shelves. And um, that was at 13. And Larry, that was the impetus for my really focusing on getting folks employed. Uh, if it wasn't for that 19, whatever it was, 60, whatever, something mid 60s, um, uh, late 60s, where I was earning 175 an hour, if I didn't find that job, I don't know where I'd be today. Um, it gave, it provided me confidence. I earned a little bit of a paycheck. I helped at home. I um, was able to get my own school clothes and it just built, built something that I was good at versus trying to fit in to the school system that wasn't necessarily ready for me or really engaging me. Didn't you buy a car? <laughs> yeah, by the time I was six, well, you know, let's talk about driver's ed. So Yeah, I mean, that's you know, an interesting thing. How did you do that? <laughs> a driver's, uh, the instructor, I remember him very clearly. And he um, said, you know, you're going to need uh, what they call a killer knob or killer switch or something. And it's a knob that would go on your uh, 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 steering wheel. And I said, I didn't need it, but of course, follow the rules. And so, um, so I started, I learned how to drive and I was intimidated by taking the driver's head test, but I did. And I, 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 I succeeded without the, the knob, which I ultimately had to fight to get off my license because I could do it without. And so I bought my first car. Um, I had a job right after that where I worked in a very uh, well-known deli in, in Boston called Kensett Copley. Oh, yeah. And I grew up there, really. I was the, the best busboy they had. I was a lone busboy to all their other restaurants. <laughs> so I saved my money and I bought my Dodge Dart by the time I was 17. 
And how did you manage to be a busboy or to do some of the physical tasks at a deli, which is usually very high pressured? Sure, sure. And that was a busy, really quite uh, wonderful place. So it doesn't take two hands, really. I want to say that respectfully of everyone that has two hands. But I would say that we use our bodies differently. And I could pick up a bus bucket with uh, the Buffalo China from those great delis, uh, pretty heavy. And I did pretty well. Initially, I was hired to be a dishwasher, but I was late because of the hour change and they needed a busboy. So they gave me a trial and I went from being a busboy to being a host, a cashier, bartending. I bartended there and you can bartend with one hand um, and uh, really was there for many, many years. And so work was always really important. School was there and I, I finished my degree ultimately. But I would say that the opportunities to work and then jumping into the Sheraton hotels was really the driving force with um, the, you know, feeling like I can contribute in a, in, a, in a way that was respectful and honorable to me. But proving myself has always been the, the biggest challenge. Um, I think folks identify as having a disability is this constant pressure to overdo, to overpromise because you know, if you could say, I would say for me, they would say, oh, he dropped the ball because he's got one hand. I would say anybody could drop the ball. And so I really worked at not ever dropping the ball, which is an added pressure, but that's life, you know? So. Well, you worked at the Sheraton here, I think, and then went to San Francisco. I'm, I'm trying I to went here, Yeah, I, I started in San Francisco, but I, I went from, yeah, but I, I no, I, I studied there, but I went from Sheraton, Boston, I went through a training program that was sent to San Diego where I'm fluent in Spanish. I helped to uh, revive a hotel there and on Harbor Island, returned to the East Coast to Baltimore with Sheraton. That was the opening hotel. And then came back home to Boston with the Sheraton. Um, and during that time, they would move you frequently. And I, I wanted to stay home, which is Boston. And so then I was hired by a retirement village that was opening out in Westboro and they wanted a hotel guy. So. Um, that's and, how I was there, uh, why was there the Sheraton so open to having you come work for them? I think it's a really terrific question. So my first job there was as a uh, room service waiter. And, you know, and that was interesting. And everyone at the front desk, as you still see, there is a, maybe it's a little bit more inclusive now, but there's a sort of picture perfect, you know, person behind a desk reading you and so on. The counters at the front desk would hide my hands. They didn't see my hands. So that kind of made, I made it through that path. But I would say there was an, there was an interest in, I had pro proven myself over and over with them and they gave me a shot at it. Initially it was behind the scenes where I would administrate the 1400 rooms and then I became manager. And then soon, there, soon thereafter, they invited me to head into what we called then personnel. I was new to them. They didn't understand really um, the reaction of the colleagues, you know, coworkers or, or, um, or guests. And, uh, you know, I overcame a lot of that. I once again was, I felt there was a big responsibility, which is still on my shoulders to uh, help people understand that. You know, you can shake a hand. It doesn't have to be the right hand. <laughs> well, there was no, at, at that era, there was no sense of diversity programs or inclusion. Yeah. So you must, it was all, it was like being the first African-American at a hotel. I mean, you 
ha must have had to educate people in overt ways or uh, subtle ways about, you know, give me a chance or I'm just like you. And it's just yeah. my hand is different. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting you would say that because there was no, for me, no context, even in the business world, the ADA was certainly far from uh, being uh, uh, um, implemented. And so there was no language around disability that was um, thoughtful and um, would give me a vocabulary. So for me, it was, uh, it was really finding some allies. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of, a you know, navigated through a few friends there that I made along the way, but there were a lot of questions and there was a lot of what can you do? Or what can't you do? Um, and it was, it wasn't overt. It was just subtle. And you know, when you're dismissed, it doesn't have to be a word. It doesn't have to be anything that, that is out put out there. It's a bot. It's a, it's a reaction. It's a reaction that the person walks away, the person intentionally or not dismisses you, and you're not part of the conversation. So being part of the conversation is really important. I always say with a sense of humor, at times it doesn't really matter what you call me, but just call me and include me. Um, so that's sort of how I grew up. And um, I didn't expect, I've never expected any niceties. I've um, always, most, most importantly, I thought, how am I going to present myself and how am I going to fit in and how am I going to help people understand that I do fit in? So uh, this was way before any, any, any regulations were put in place. Um, I was promoted pretty fast. So. It was about this time when you started working for Sheraton, I think that you became uh, cognizant of being gay and started to come out in, into the gay community. Is that right? Well, a little before that, of course, you'd know as a child that there's something a little different. You can't quite put your hands on it. And as a teenager, I, I've been on my own since I was 16. So I was living by myself. I, my mother had moved on to uh, Florida and I was working in this restaurant uh, that I mentioned, which was a restaurant that was very diverse and it had a, a good community of gay um, co-workers. And my mother, by the way, was always very inclusive because she worked in the beauty oh. business and she brought home, she, she was, she was a cook. So she brought home a lot of folks that she fed and loved and so on. So it was never that I wasn't exposed. It was, it didn't fit me because of a, maybe because of my Latino, Latino background. I don't know. So coming out in that restaurant at 16, 17, was the best thing that could have happened because there was a support network there of younger people. Yeah. Um, and then I went to San Francisco to, to start my education art therapy. So by the time I came to Sheraton, um, I was not out. I have, I actually, Larry, I've been, I, I was closeted at work until only 20 years ago when there was an article in the Boston Globe about the work that I do in Cuba. And a very young reporter didn't have any, she was not intentional, outed me as a reluctant activist. And she talked about my disability, she talked about my, my relationship, she talked about going to Cuba. And I, I, that was, that was a, a healthy thing that I really had to contend with because then it was out to the family, it was out to the community. So somebody did it for me. <laughs> was, what, how accepting was the gay community of your disability? Um, well, I would say that back then, um, what I what I experienced was um, sort of, um, you know, everyone was just so perfectly coiffed and dressed, and there was a look and a feel, 
and I didn't fit in. So most of the folks that I was involved with, whether friends, oh, actually always, were a little bit older. So my my generation, I felt like I I didn't fit in. And you know, physical attraction is one, but then it's a whole hand thing. So it took a while for me to find that I was valuable enough that someone would want me. And that certainly happened a couple of times along the way. And I've been in, in a wonderful relationship and married for now 35 years. Um, and so, but it was hard. Those, those, that era was a very difficult time for me um, as a young man trying to find someone to be engaged with, you know? So I, I don't think the community at that point knew the depth of disability and certainly with the impact of AIDS, it certainly changed the demeanor and how the community rose to the occasion and became more inclusive themselves. Um, and I, you know, I, I've lived through all that and I can see that the separation that I grew up with, whether it was women and men uh, and so on, has shifted. Um, and the strength, I think, came from the, the very challenging time and difficult and sad time of the, the AIDS crisis, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Cuba, uh, going back to Cuba. Uh, at some point and, and working there or, wor- or working with people there? How, how did that come about? So when I had, when we opened the restaurant, it was the first um, Cuban American restaurant in downtown Boston and several Cubans came young and old and uh, to enjoy their culture and food. And it was quite popular. It was called Mucho Gusto. And one of them was a, a young a representative um, uh, that was a state senator soon after. And so Jets Jared Barrios, and he told me about his, that he's bringing books to Cuba. And I said, well, I'm very interested, nervous about it because I, I didn't even tell my mother until I was booked a flight um, because she, we, she fled the second time. We fled Cuba the second time out. And so my grandfather had been arrested and my great uncle had been assassinated. And it was, it was a lot of turmoil in my family and still continues with, the, with Cuba and the loss of family. So I ended up going and became engaged with the community of leaders that address advocacy and disability in Cuba. Uh, you know, amazing amount, amazing folks that work wonders uh, under a very difficult resource depleted country. But the leaders there were well read. They understood the dynamics of disability. They were champions for their community. And I became one of their allies. So as I started going more frequently, I would work with um, several of our agencies here to buy, um, um, you know, assistive technology for those that are visually impaired or hearing impaired. We adopted a few programs um, and I'm very proud of that and really learned an awful lot. Uh, And Cubans have a good sense of humor. So we laughed a lot. Well, let me take you back. How did you start the the restaurant, the critically acclaimed Mucho Gusto? When I was at the Sheridan in Baltimore and I met John in Baltimore, I said, you know, I have this vision to open a restaurant. So we started 10 years prior and started and I knew enough about opening a business because I had helped to open a couple of facilities. So I had a critical path and all that and knew enough about service. I, I feel like that's one of my strengths that I feel like we should be service-minded to each other, and then obviously the clients that we serve. And I don't cook at all, but my mother was an incredible cook. And then we took all her recipes and made them a little bit healthier and and, uh, the ability to replicate them. And we've put a business plan together and we opened this restaurant 
on Boylston Street next to Berkeley School of Music. And I designed it. So that's my contribution. Plus I ran the front of the house. So I was able to bring in a little bit of history about Cuba pre-Castro. Um, it was fun. It was vibrant. It was mixed. It was very inclusive. And um, the food got great accolades. And uh, for soon we started receiving some recognition, which really was made us very busy. I had just left Norton Company in Worcester, which is St. Coban. Uh, we ran it for five years successfully so and then I decided I didn't I couldn't make it any bigger and then the catering came in a cookbook came out of that and um, still there's a little bit of history and people do call upon us but we received incredible great gifts from our customers and from the press and uh, I'll say an, an interesting uh, thing that happened when the, one of the critics called uh, related to this topic um, he called and he said, I'm coming in. I, you won't recognize me, but I'm coming in. I just want to know the hours and I'm, one of the, I'm going to review the restaurant. And I said, well, I know you can't identify yourself, but thank you for uh, giving us a shot. So well, what's unique about your restaurant? I gave him a little bit of information. This was 1995. And I said, and I'm really thrilled that both our restrooms are handicap accessible. Because back then it was rare. And there's a bit of a ramp that you could come into the restaurant. He said, on the phone. I really don't care about that. Yeah. Well, he probably didn't. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah. And it was probably the biggest investment that we had in the restaurant. <laughs> there were two great bathrooms, probably bigger than the dining room. <laughs> so anyway, I was so, it was really critical to me then. And you know what? What I cut came out of it, that we were able to host the student population and their parents and their families and people that come in from legislator to guests that came into the city we were accessible we were tight in space but our bathrooms were accessible and i'm very proud of that and you know so the, the restaurant was great it's still i still have great memories talk a little bit about the design of the restaurant so i'm a collector and i've been collecting i think part of the collection started as you find your way in this country, you know, I wouldn't be caught dead in them when I was a kid, but then I fell in love with thrift stores. And what I would do is I would find things that my mother would talk, say, share with me that I used to have something like that in Cuba. Oh, I, that little table reminds me of something that I had by my bed. Oh my goodness, that's the same clothes, uh, dress that I had or similar. So I started collecting and everything was vintage in the restaurant. And you could buy anything in the restaurant. You could buy one of the paintings. You could buy one of the artifacts, sort of pre-50s modern, some art deco um, and uh, fun because that design era was fun. And um, it, it got a little bit of recognition. So it, it really was about um, revi re sort of reviving something that would have been discarded. So there wasn't anything new there. Everything was very vintage and I think nicely put together. Um, and people really enjoyed it. And um, there was a bar. Um, one of my fondest memories at the bars, I love matchmaking. So I would have someone that would come in, let's say a woman after work, and she would come off and I get to know her. I talk to her and so on. And I'd say, why don't you come on Thursday? There's another nice person that would come. <laughs> and I would, and then I would, I would say, you know, I would give them things to do. I would say, why don't you help me fill the salt and pepper shakers? And they would be doing something together. I had a couple of hits. <laughs> Not bad. I, I, I just that. loved it. I loved it. I really did love it. And um, and so the the design was um, received uh, some some nice recognition. It was it, they filmed in the restaurant. 
They did a couple of videos. Yeah. So it got a little bit of attention there. And then from the restaurant, did you move on to Spalding? No, no. I was consulting to pay the bills during the time I had the restaurant. I um, then was hired to work in federal government. Um, I did a little consulting for them and they brought me in as a full time. And that was for the regional social security office uh, to recruit for their claims offices. So I was able to travel throughout New England and they were very interested in hiring individuals with disabilities. And I always say, let's hire for talent and skill. They were, you know, government is government. So they were very specific and very targeted approach to what qualifies. So I was there for a couple of years. I also was able to recruit folks from the community of Latinos and as well as uh, African-American communities and Asian. And so I've always done a little bit of diversity work along the side, looking for the right talent. And I did that for a couple of years when I was recruited by State Street Global Advisors. And I was only there a short time when Mass General came knocking. And I owe Mass General a lot because of the fact that my mother, when she was in an accident, uh, they took really good care of her. So that's how I started. And what did you do at Mass General? I stopped my career with the restaurant. So I was already a, uh, at the point that I left Sheraton, I was a senior director of human resources. And of course, when you, and I did a few stints over in, in, in Worcester as a regional and a, uh, person going to Mexico and so on with them. But when you, I put everything on hold, opened the restaurant. And so the title was gone and um, I was able, fortunately, be able to jump back in. And I started as a director of um, senior recruitment for diversity at Mass General. Within a couple of years, I, you know, it, was, it, was, it went well. Um, and I was volunteering on the board of Overseers for Spalding. Um, and they, I, got, I became acquainted with them and their incredible work. And they uh, invited me to apply for the vice president of human resources at Spalding, which then grew into some other work. And I was all together within the two of them. I've, I was at the organization 20 years. You should tell our listeners what Spalding does. I mean, it's an incredible organization in terms of rehabilitation. Uh, my God, it's my pride and joy. I would say that Spalding is not only a place where you can heal uh, from, you know, minor injuries, traumatic injury. It's staffed by the most incredible therapists, nurses, and doctors. And they are so devoted and dedicated to their patients. They are incredibly well uh, known for their research. The areas of uh, specialties, and there are many, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, burns, stroke, and so on. And it's, it is about healing and finding your new way through life. Um, and there's some, what some might say were miracle outcomes, but I would say it comes from the strength of the patient and it comes from the partnership of the, uh, the caregivers. And we, uh, I'll still say we, cause I'm still very much a part of the family. We do this through many ways. We do it through adaptive sports. We do it through music therapy. We do it through um, uh, art. Um, and uh, we're connected very deeply with all the um, advocates. And so that resulted with a great opportunity to design an inclusive um, uh, human-centered building that has received lots of awards for thinking about every user that comes through the door and lessons learned along the way. So I would say that Spalding is number two in the country. I think at this point, um, in my mind, I think it's our number one. We have a gem in New England and in the nation and many folks from across the world. And if you ever get down to the Charlestown area Navy Yard, just take a look. 
Um, yeah. There's a wonderful park across the way that's for all children of all abilities. It, there's incredible views. And I always say the only thing they don't have there is a cocktail lounge. <laughs> <laughs> now, somewhere along the line, you wound up at the White House getting an award from President Obama. So how, how did that happen? I have, you know, that is, that was, you know, so it's, it. first of all, I really appreciated uh, President Obama's um, journey and uh, was very much, you know, one of uh, one of the allies thinking about this man that um, that uh, would make a difference at the White House. And so I created a couple of different uh, initiatives with support. I I uh, designed and, and drafted what I called um, working partners which is um, uh, basically an org- a program that connects voc rehab with businesses and voc rehab specialists learn about the business. And then the magic happens when we place good people that really understand the work. So it's really encouraging to the voc rehab specialists. And then the clients that are placed are much more ready and prepared through internships, but also really understanding the bells and whistles of any industry. And that uh, received some recognition uh, which led to uh, a project that I'm still very much involved in. It's called Job Lab. And that is um, uh, housed in Spalding, Cambridge. And it, it's a little bit of that flavor, but it's really hands-on training where you get to learn and do and practice before you get on the floor and really deal with customers, deal with sharp knives, deal with patients, deal, deal with housing, deal with uh, everything you have to address when you start a job that is particular to your interests and there's a need. So. So those two areas received uh, um, this incredible recognition, I'll always remember. And that led you to the White House? Then led me to working on a task force with senior folks that uh, was around looking at really competitive wage and inclusive employment, which uh, a very robust report came out of that. Unfortunately, sadly enough, it didn't go very far with the, the change in administration that is still there. Um, and I'm still involved um, indirectly with the federal government through a couple of different alliances that I have and some of the consulting as well. And so were, did you, were you brought to the White House? Did you meet the oh, president? Oh, yes. I, you know, I, I, being at the White House, I was there a couple of times. I'm not a name dropper. I really, it's not who I am. I was, Please drop I was really, I was really <laughs> channeling my mother uh, when I entered the White House. She revered. And so as we do, reveal this country. So to have, to got a little emotional around this, to be able to step into the White House and be in the presence of the president um, and so many other incredible people was really about her. And, you know, I remember when we were kids, we would see a view of you master, see all the White House trimmings. And so to be there with incredible leadership um, was, uh, you know, an important piece of kind of culminating a lot of work around disability and access. And I was able to work with what is the Secretary of Labor then Perez, which then I think became the 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 um, the lead in the campaign. Um, and so, yeah, I touched I touched a lot of good people, and they touched me. So I was involved. Were you in a room to hand you an award? The award was won. We had this viewing and uh, celebration. We did get a, a very detailed and really were able to be part of the West Wing. But I also went back during the holiday season when that 
building is vibrant and there's joy and there's promise and there's all those things that go beyond the holiday baubles but then you really feel the presence of of an amazing country that um that you know i those you know those presidents those first ladies those incredible uh memories that you you never think you would be able to see and i was able to walk the halls a little bit because i was doing a couple of interviews and they gave me a little bit of flexibility so amazing uh so now you're out into the uh, business world as a consultant so what are you trying to do now this is uh, again you're being entrepreneurial yeah, so I always did a little bit of this, you know, even when I was employed through my other employers, I would get a call and it was not a conflict. I, I would, I would, I did a little bit of work in Dubai, I did a little bit of work in Haiti, and certainly in Cuba and then uh, Bermuda. And so it, it, it gave me a flavor of what consulting might be like. And as I was leaving my regular work, I was invited to work with Disability in out of the, out of Washington. And, you know, they're a business to business organization really talks about inclusion in a really deep way. So I'm one of their consultants. I'm working with a couple of other folks around diversity and inclusion. And at the end of the day, what's motivating me now, and I, I don't want to necessarily fill my entire calendar, is where I see there's an opportunity to continue to bridge that gap for employment. Um, I'm Right now, I was appointed to uh, Governor Baker's uh, Commission on the Status of Persons with Disabilities, which we hadn't had one for a while. So I'm working very closely with the uh, representatives, Garlic and Cutler, on a few initiatives to really, um, once again, intentionally uh, raise the bar and amplify the need for inclusive employment. I come at it from not only the perspective of someone with a disability that a lot of doors have been shut, but really from the business aspect, uh, because there is still such a long way to go in terms of inclusion here, and uh, it shouldn't be this difficult. I saw that you used the phrase a foreign concept for many business owners and corporations still, even, the, even in the face of diversity initiatives. It, it seems to me, just from observation, that people with disabilities and people with disabilities of color, and people with disabilities, Native Americans are on the back. They're not being looked at. Uh, other groups who have long been suffering are getting ahead, but they're all able-bodied members of those groups. And that's what's astonishing to me that the, it's sort of a reverse form of prejudice. <laughs> We're not gonna look at African-Americans who are in wheelchairs. We'll just look at able-bodied African-Americans. Yeah. How can you exclude such a large percentage of a group that you're actually trying to go after and include them? Well, Larry, I would tell you that this became so prominent during the COVID crisis where the folks that were really uh, struggling and really in peril are individuals with disabilities that are also uh, people of color. And so we tried to stand that up very intentional at Mass General Brigham. But I would say the earlier diversity initiatives uh, were still with a reluctance. And it was like, we're going to do this and we're going to do this in stages and address the critical needs and so on. I said, well, disability is not selective. It covers all communities. And the intersection that you just described so well is where the real loss is and in, in trying to um, provide um, attention services when needed and really, really be inclusive. So 
there were, you know, to the point it's still foreign concept. Not every diversity and inclusion program includes persons with disabilities. It's not outlined. The wording is sure. Of course we would, but I wanted to see it labeled only because unless it's labeled, it won't be addressed. And so, so I would say there's a long way to go. I'm, I'm encouraged that many organizations are thinking this through. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm pretty vocal about this. I don't have any, any qualms about stating that there is a significant miss in any diversity inclusion program that does not address disability as one of the areas and communities that are, uh, um, are disenfranchised and need to be included. Um, there still is a stigma and there still is a concern about the fit. And so how is it going to work? What are some of the things I need to know about? At times, regulations kind of become the biggest barrier, even though they've paved the way. Um, so understanding that, you know, the regulations are there as a foundation. But I always say go beyond compliance and engage the individual in whatever accommodation they may need. Um, if you let your guard down and you become as a hire manager, really interested in filling the job with the right person, never mind where folks come from or what they have or don't have, um, and that they're able to do the job. It doesn't really matter how the job gets done, but it gets done. You know, there are some, some, some challenges in, this, in the world. I understand that. But most of them are based on assumptions. And the fact that folks, you know, have a sense that unless you have the image that, that has always received the jobs, that if you don't fit that image, it's not going to work. And so there's a lot, there's a lot, there's still a lot of work to be done. I would say there, in my experience, um, being uh, factual and being um, engaged in the process of interviewing what that means and sourcing and help and helping folks understand that you are welcome, that you can, you can be, you can inform us as to what you need to be successful. So instead of hiding, you're sharing information. Um, and I'm working on that. I'm working on that with youth. I'm working on that with more senior folks and very much working with the business world. And it pays dividends. It really does. And I, it's not all about business, but there's, there's a, a great opportunity in, in including disability in everything you do, whether it's a, a grant, a new building, a way to think about engaging your staff. Because if you don't have a disability and you're at work, you have made colleagues of ours that have children, partners, spouses, that may have disabilities. And that's a way to say, we know you, we understand you, and we want to make sure you have what you need. And then we care for you as a human being. So there's a lot of trepidation. I think sometimes it's wording, sometimes it's lack of knowledge. There's a mysticism around disability that we, uh, we still need to work on. And sometimes I just say, it doesn't matter what you, know, what you call me, but just call me so I can engage in a, in a real conversation. It's still, it is a long way to go, but I, you know, I see promises. And right now we have another opportunity uh, with uh, technology being a resource that we, not everyone wants to work um, at home. And it's sort of the healthiest thing as well. But it also showed us that we can do some work remotely. It doesn't require that you come into a particular space. And technology has also opened the doors for a lot of other different ways of doing work. Since I only have one hand and that's designed differently, I'm probably the worst. My typing is atrocious. And I, I rarely use Dragon, naturally speaking, not because it's not a good product. I just learned how to do it without it. So I'm adjusting to the technology that helps me be more efficient. And I can see that. Plus, there's a generation of managers now and hiring supervisor that grew up 
in a, in a school edu- in, in their educational programs where they may have had a friend with a disability, unlike my era where I was the only kid. Um, and so I think it's shifting. I think it's shifting. Yeah, I think uh, I always go back to the uh, proposition that people don't see the value. And just in your life, the, the reaction to the disability created your drive, created your creativity uh, to some degree, because you had, you, you had to innovate to figure out how to be a busboy. You had to innovate to do a lot of things. And that sense of innovation that a person with disability is sort of constantly doing to have any efficacy in the world is should be of value to the business community, except for many people, they don't know that. They, they don't know all the great qualities you bring and other people bring just because, because of what you've had to do in your life. And that will enable them to be more creative and innovative in a world where businesses have to do this all the time now. It's a very fluid world. It really is. And I think, you know, that's a great point. And what I would say is, you know, we come, if you identify as having a disability and as a community, we're all different. It's no individual. There's one common thread, and that is that we do have to innovate. We live in a world that is not designed for us. That, you know, I have to think about what I'm going to be carrying, what I'm going to be handling. And, and I don't have a prosthetic, which I'm actually at this stage, I'm looking at one, oh, not because it would, not because I need it. It's just that I'm thinking, all right, I want to do a little bit more in this area of creativity. So I'm actually I'm in the process of getting a prosthetic. I've had many and many have been gone for years. So, so what it is, it's like, I had to think in advance. It's second nature. I don't have to, you know, I don't expect that anything will be there readily handed to me. I'm always thrilled when someone that I know or has gotten to work with me as a friend and they'll hand me two things at the same time, not remembering. And they say, oh my God, I always forget, which is terrific because that's, we want to be seen as our, you know, what we bring and, and what we have versus what we may be missing. And so with that, the innovation part comes with, how am I going to navigate my day? How am I, what am I going to need to be um, successful in whatever I'm doing, small and major? Um, and, you know, I have to say that living in New England with a differently designed hand has been tough. Gloves don't fit me. So it's been really interesting how I've been able to work through that um, and many, many laughs along the way. That's what happens. So we, our clothes are adapted. We have adapted to who we are. And if you have an injury later on in life, there are many examples that you can tap now that weren't around prior, but that influence of innovation spills over into work. And that, that experience can lead to new ideas, can lead to thinking about our clients in a different way. One of the things that I think has been really interesting is websites are not accessible. Um, and I've said that clearly in the folks that I've worked in hospitals, Every single patient is either temporarily disabled or permanently disabled. So you need to be right on that game because that's your client. So look at the built environment and look at the digital environment. If I have low vision and I can't look at your website, because I can't see you or access your website, you've lost a customer. So, and you potentially have lost someone that you could employ in it successfully. So work, you know, work has, that's moved forward a little bit further. And uh, bringing in folks that have the lived experience, I think has been helpful in adjusting some of the, some of this. So, you know, I, as we were designing the building, one of my colleagues said, 
we're not going to put automatic hand washing in. Um, I don't, I, 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 I don't see how that's going to help anybody. I said, well, you've got hands. (laughs) So let's think about someone that may just have an elbow and can, you know, navigate through automation. And so that lived experience, I think, can be helpful. And I'm not an angry activist. That's just who I am. But some at times you have to, you know, wear, wear it and uh, bring it to the table. It's an intersection of my life that is part of who I am. It's not all, everything I am, but it's probably the most visible part of who I am. I don't look, people say, you don't look Cuban. Well, Cubans come in different shapes and sizes. I don't know if they can say that I'm gay or tell it I'm gay. I don't know if that's the case. Um, but certainly right at the beginning, when you meet someone, you're going to shake their hand. There's definitely an aha moment there. So that's what I wear most boldly because that's where I think I can make most of a difference. Well, I, I know you've made a great deal of difference. I, I know you will continue to make a lot of difference in the world through your life and your idealism and your practical knowledge. And I think you're a role model for other people with disabilities to get a sense of confidence that they can do the job. And when they present themselves to an employer, that they should be proud of what they've done in their life and with the contribution they, they can make. They're bringing a lot to the table. And if they have to educate the employer about that, well, that they have to, but the employer has got to meet them halfway. So there's a real partnership there, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, a, it's when the magic happens and I, I'm so looking back at all these years, it's been four decades now and, and sort of aligned with this business. I see, I have so many success, not that I had anything, well, I was a conduit, shall we say, but the success stories of when a door opens, that is so meaningful because the contributions and the return on that investment of giving someone an opportunity to show what they can do is magic. It's absolute magic. And uh, looking back over the years, I, I, I'm very thrilled for these folks that have been in my life, whatever reason, entry level or not, that I've seen work through it. And, and fight the battle because at times it is kind of that. And, you know, realistically we're aging in place. So if you accommodate someone now, you know that that accommodation is gonna fit someone that's already in place because then you've worked through the process. Uh, and we want to retain the best talent no matter what. So it's a business imperative. Um, I see it clearly in that whole different segment around business related to disability and inclusion. I think there's an awful lot of value there to the business world. Well, thank you, Oz, for everything and your insights and to your zest and joy for life and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Well, Larry, right back at you. I thank you for amplifying our voices, telling our stories, and I'm so glad you do what you do. And it's been a pleasure to reconnect. Take care. Take care.